know exactly. Drive all thought from your mind. Concentrate. Concentrate. Good morning, Nat. Welcome to the Gin and Tonic podcast. Uh, Nat is doing her Doctor of Physiotherapy in the University of Melbourne. Um, mm -hmm. But before that, she was doing uh, a Bachelor's of Biomedicine uh, prior to that. So uh, maybe I'll just give her the floor and let her talk about uh, what, what biomedicine entails. Yeah, uh, so uh, maybe I'll just introduce the Melbourne model first. Sure. So at the University of Melbourne, the Melbourne model kind of um, includes an undergraduate degree where it's like either a Bachelor of Biomed, a Bachelor of Biomedicine, Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of Arts or Commerce. And these are basically like foundation degrees that set you up for further postgraduate studies. And I found this perfect for me because I knew I wanted to be in healthcare, but I didn't exactly know which I guess, which direction I wanted to go. Did I want to be a doctor? Did I want to be a physiotherapist? Um, and being in the Bachelor of Biomedicine, actually, this course actually allowed me to explore many different options. And it, was, it wasn't like locking you into anything at all, but more so giving you the freedom to really test out different directions. And that's basically what the Bachelor of Biomedicine was. And it also actually piqued my interest in this one disease that led me to my honors year before my physiotherapy, which is really interesting as well. But yeah, that's the Bachelor of Biometry you. <laughs> and then I, I, do you mind talking about the factors that, that brought you towards biomedicine? Um, like before that, uh, mm. where, where, did you, where did you attend secondary school and JC? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I grew up in Singapore and I went to Crescent Girls School and then I went to Anglo-Chinese Junior College, ACJC, where I met John. <laughs> and it was, in, it was definitely in Crescent Girls School when I was starting to learn um, biology, chemistry and physics at a greater depth, as, as in obviously like after primary school. In primary school, it was just foundation, but secondary school, that was when I kind of realized like, oh, I actually really like biology. This is tough, but I love it. I loved how um, I learned so much about the, I guess, the human body, and I understood why things were working, why things weren't working. And it kind of um, made me really interested in it because I saw the detective side of things. Like sometimes when something wasn't working, we only see the symptoms, but I want to find out like what's happening, like why, what led you to that point? And so that was when my, my interest was first peaked. That was in secondary school. And then in ACJC, I, I went further in the directions of bio and chem. And that was, again, a confirmation like, yep, this is what I want to do. <laughs> and then finally, when after I graduated, I was very happy with my score. And I thought this was a good opportunity for me to actually choose something that I want. Like I was very lucky in that my, my grades did not 
limit what my options were. It was more so giving me the option or the chance to really explore many different options. And so um, after taking a year off in, in Munich, in Germany, where I learned the language, um, it was something like a gap year. It was really, it was good for me, I think, because JC kind of took it out of me. <laughs> like my mental health was just not great and I needed some time off. And then it was in that year that I realized that, yeah, I'm going to lock it in. I'm going to do healthcare for my career. And that's why Bachelor of Biomed. Well, a few things happened why I ended up moving to Australia, but yeah, Bachelor of Biomed was my answer. Yeah. What would you say was the most impactful and then the, the most challenging of classes? Uh, okay. Yeah. Very good question. Um, throughout the, th the three years in Biomed, it starts off with like setting you up for this, I guess, exam called the GAMSET exam. It's kind of like a, an, an exam that people have to take and do well yeah. in if they actually want to get into courses like um, medicine and... dentistry as well. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I think yeah, med medicine for sure. And then dentistry as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of the, the subjects in first year were kind of set for us. We didn't have much wiggle room for actually choosing other subjects, but um, in second year and third year, we had more flexibility of actually choosing our electives or disciplines as they call it here. And so first year, it was quite, <laughs> quite traumatic in a way because I had to learn, oh my gosh, math, so much math. And I was like, I, I really don't need this because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to use uh. like all these formulae <laughs> when I actually graduate. <laughs> so that was quite horrendous, um, but I did well. I, as, in, as in, I know how to do well just to do well. It doesn't mean I enjoy it, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that was, I think, the... the the hardest part for me, like actually doing something that I actually really don't like. <laughs> but my the best part was when I got the freedom to kind of start choosing what subjects I wanted to, I guess, special, specialize or, or major in. So that was in third year when I uh, specialized, oh, actually they call it here, that you major in something. So I majored mm -hmm. in anatomy. That was when I really started like going deep into the muscles, the the bones, literally everything. And it was so, so interesting. And to complement that, I actually took another subject called muscle and exercise physiology. Mm -hmm. So while I was learning about the muscles and basically whole, the whole musculoskeletal system, I was also learning about the physiology behind it and how it impacts your training. Mm -hmm. um, not only just training, but more so um, living life with the muscles that you have in your body. Yeah. So one thing that they focused on uh, for one part of the subject was this disease called sarcopenia. And it's characterized by low skeletal muscle mass, low skeletal muscle strength, and low physical function. And I was like, whoa, this is really, really cool because I'm greatly passionate about the geriatric population. And this disease is highly prevalent in this population, in the geriatric population. And I thought this is super in line with what I'm interested in. And so that became like very quickly my favorite subject because um, it made sense to me. It, it sounded very like a very pressing meta and I felt like I could actually do something about it because it was in line with what I wanted to do and I mm -hmm. think I'm good at what yeah. I'm doing. So that was it. But I, I, I would imagine that the mathematics like came in handy when you were doing like uh, musculoskeletal physiology because if you did biomechanics and, and stress, uh, stress calculations... Surprisingly, I, I actually did not do any strength calculations, but I must say that when I did my honors year, yeah. I had to do, I had to work with stats like all the time. And so my stats subject from year one actually came in handy. <laughs> so mm. I'm like, okay, fine. I guess I'm thankful for that. 
<laughs> but yeah, there was this other math or biomed subject where I'm like, oh, I really don't know where I would use this formula for. <laughs> but yeah, so it was, um, I guess I used a bit of it, but not everything. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk more about the significant projects in your in your honors thesis. Have you got mm-hmm. a have you got a few or have you got a most significant project that you worked on uh, within your within biomedicine? Yeah, so the honors year is your time to actually um, tell the supervisors what you're passionate about and what you want to work on for literally an entire year. So obviously I said sarcopenia. So I was like, I just want to do anything about it. Just tell me, to give me some work. I want to do anything for sarcopenia. Because it's actually, um, fun fact, it was a very recently recognized disease just mm. in 2010. So really? a lot, yeah, yeah. So like, at, like right now, it's just 11 years old, like barely. So that's why a lot of research is still going on in this, in this field, this, this field of sarcopenia. And I, I was, um, I guess, asked to focus on screening tools for this disease. So screening tools are very important so that we can identify people who are at risk of actually developing the disease or even have it already. Um, so we can like, propose um, necessary treatments for them to get better or even prevent the development of the disease. So that's why it's really important. I was like, whoa, okay, this is huge. I really need to focus on this. So I spent a whole year focusing on that. The first part of my year was basically doing a systematic review and meta-analysis where I pulled in all the data that I could find about the screening tool from all over the world. And I basically like a mic drop moment. It was the final conclusion of what everyone else was finding and putting it together and giving uh, one final say of whether the screening tool was good or bad. And um, the second part of the year was spent creating a new screening tool because after I proved that the existing screen, like most famous screening tool wasn't good for several reasons. Um, I like, we started creating a new one to hopefully replace that one. Well, not so replace because we did a population specific screening tool while they had a screening tool for all populations. I see. So I was just proposing the one for my own population, which was mm-hmm. geriatric rehab in patients. Right, right. Yeah. So, so wait, but for geriatric rehab then, because it was a screening tool for sarcopenia, wouldn't mm. that like wouldn't that usually just be for geriatric or sarcopenia like uh, prevalent in populations other than the geriatric community? Yeah, so it's um, it's highly prevalent in the geriatric community, but it's also um, prevalent in other communities such as cancer patients, for example. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so there has been there have been some links that have been found between cancer cachexia, which is kind of like loss of um, loss of the body weight and mm-hmm. oh, loss of body mass. I think that's the definition. I'm not really too sure about this, but part of that, like a that's an umbrella term and there are many other things that's happening under cancer cachexia and they're finding some links between that and sarcopenia. So sarcopenia found in that population as well. And basically in, um, in any group of people who actually have to experience a long, I guess, long period of bed rest, for example, mm-hmm. where they don't use their muscles very much. So all sarcopenia is... is um, basically your muscle strength, mass, and physical function going below a certain threshold. Yeah. And it just so happens that it just inevitably happens as you get older. Yes. So that's why it's highly prevalent in the geriatrics. Right. So um, yeah, it's across the entire age spectrum. Mm. It surprised mm. me that it that was only like uh, categorized in 2010 because I've, I've been hearing again and again that from the age of 50, you lose about 1% of muscle mass every year. Mm-hmm. And then it mm-hmm. compounds, it compounds obviously. Um, 
but then like I, I would have never thought that it was a rather a fairly new topic that or rather a new term that was coined oh that's actually a really really good point actually um so yes that's correct like um above a certain age that's when your muscles start to decline and everything but i think it was just in 2010 when we started realizing the adverse health outcomes of it I people see. just thought like oh yeah you're just decreasing muscle it's kind of um, normal you're just going to look thinner but like what is the consequence of it and yeah. now they found that it's it's associated with falls fractures um mm-hmm. greater um period of hospitalization yeah um even rehospitalization so hospitalization again and again and again as well as mortality even so there's just so many adverse health outcomes that just came up after mm-hmm. this was classified as a disease yeah yeah very good I, point though. I, I guess like another thing that's quite yeah because i can imagine how how that could um lead to adverse health outcomes because if you're thinking of just skeletal muscle mm-hmm. decline then yes it's movement mobility it's fall risk and uh, ability to ability to function so that's why mm-hmm. i think like it's a really important job for physiotherapists and occupational therapists to help people mm-hmm. continue living and and functioning as human beings but i think also like the internal muscles like your diaphragm oh, for uh, sure. other other muscles which which also then um inhibit recovery if in the case of of like infections and and things mm-hmm. like that yeah yeah and also on that point of inhibiting recovery there has been some research linking depression to um i guess sarcopenia and so you know with recovery mental health and the mental I guess prowess is really really important to help yeah. someone sustain through the entire recovery marathon and um with sarcopenia the decline in mental health and everything is literally just it's a vicious cycle of just mm. it just compounds with each other i think and just brings someone down yeah. for many many factors yeah i think it's it's kind of like um the i guess almost not not so much like disappointment in yourself mm. but like the frustration that you can't do the things that yes. you used to be able to do um mm. or even it it could it to show up as like disbelief or then yes. then manifesting in like anxiety and and then um resignation at the end right yes yes and so when they start actually resigning from life so to say they start not like they don't move around as much they just yeah. sit down and just be really upset and it's it's this moment of i guess lack of mobility mobility that leads to the decline in muscle as well so it's just like you don't have muscle you get sad you you, you decline even more muscle because you don't move um yeah yeah but then what would we what in your opinion what would be the way to tackle sarcopenia so one thing that they're really focusing on at the moment is resistance training mm-hmm. that has been something that's been proven to be quite quite useful for even the geriatric population because that's kind of like my focus so i can say most about this population and yeah so that helps with maintaining muscle mass to increase muscle mass above the age of let's say 65 is it, it gets it's quite hard already yep. by then because the synthesis of protein post exercise or post a meal high in protein it's it's really it's declining with age so at that point it's not really helping very much so our our aim is really just to maintain the muscle mass yep. as someone gets older but there has been also very interesting research into um vitamin D supplementation hmm. but not much has come out of that and some people are even saying that antioxidants could potentially play yeah. a part in uh, preventing or slowing down um muscle decline so very vitamin- interesting 
I mean, to, to explain to people who might mm. not understand what vitamin D is, it's the vitamin that your skin naturally div, uh, produces when you're exposed to sunlight. And that uh, that enables the uptake of calcium and and the and the maintenance of your bones. Mm-hmm. Oh, but are there exactly. any other any other functions of vitamin D? Yeah, so in the muscle, I'm not 100% sure, so, I, so don't take my word for it, okay, but I think sure. that there is something to do with the um, length tension relationship and also the ability to actually contract and like um, for the... I know why, it's because of calcium yes. ions. Calcium ions oh, yeah. help your, your muscles <laughs> contract. So yeah. yes, you're, you're okay. right, you're right, you're, you're perfectly right in that one. Okay. Um. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm glad we're kind of like like helping each other finish this. People like, oh, help me, Tom. <laughs> no, that's good. We're that's both good. detectives on this one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's really really um, exciting to see which direction the research is going. In. Like you yeah. really wouldn't uh, realize that actually, as not realize, sorry, but I I had no idea that bone health actually has to do with muscle health as well. And yes. like vice versa. So for example, if your muscles are not doing well, there isn't like um, a constant, I guess, tension on the yep. bones. And then yep. if there's no pressure on it, then it starts getting brittle and that's yes. when osteoporosis comes yep. around. It's like, oh, it's terrible. Yeah, it's called <laughs> stress shielding um, is the term. Stress shielding on your bones. Or at least that's something that's ah, a factor yes. when, uh, when people go up to space and don't have the okay. resistance. They lose ah, a lot yes, of bone yes. mass. Okay. I then continued talking about caring about biomaterials both in terms of stress shielding and the inflammatory response for macrophages. I felt that this was not entirely relevant to the episode and thus chose to cut it out, but uh, we returned to us talking about inflammation. So then uh, it's important that... um, Actually, we learned that inflammation is not bad. Mm, Sometimes we treat inflammation like it's the plague, but it's actually really, really good because that's your body responding your immune system doing what it's meant to do, um, breaking exactly. down cells um, and then sending sending more cells over to recover the area. Mm-hmm. And that increased temperature just like increases the, the activity of cells as well. Yes. Oh my gosh. Inflammation is not bad. Like yes. <laughs> we, we just recently learned like with um, muscle injury, it's important to actually have the inflammation process take place at mm-hmm. first. If you stop it completely, the repair process will not go through as it should have gone through and at the end actually causes like worse outcomes of this injury yeah. so yeah let it get inflamed and then worry about it after <laughs> obviously then maybe take some anti-inflammatories but of course of course think about it after <laughs> no but i mean like the the typical muscle the typical muscle treatment is like cold compress mm-hmm. isn't it well yeah or like there's, there's, hot, there's hot with- compress as well Right. Yes, yes. There's some research going into the cold compress. They said that it actually um, limits blood supply into the area and that yep. could actually slow down the immune um, response. But mm. yes, the usual, like what is commonly known, yeah, cold compress. You're correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I kind no. of foresaw this just like us nerding out and things. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. <laughs> the next interesting question would be, since we need um, the geriatric community to get, get enough vitamin D as well as have enough resistance training, do you foresee like ex- outdoor gyms where old people are training 
Uh, like, yeah. do you foresee that as a as a reality or something that we should work towards? Yeah, for sure. But like, how cute would it be? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say that. Um, yeah, actually, because I do CrossFit as well and also dragon boating. And we have a lot of members who are actually above 65 years old. And they're still going very strong. And mm. it's incredible to see how um, if you actually consistently do things or exercise to maintain your muscle it can actually last for a really long time and so I really I do see the expansion of the older adults in the sports community and it is the dream to actually just in any gym not just crossfit or dragon boarding or or like I guess older adult specific gyms I do hope that one day maybe fitness first or or anytime fitness or any other gyms out there they would have a class especially for older adults like for the older adults who did not grow up exercising very much and they needed somewhere to start. Because I can imagine that um, if I guess you don't have a very strong foundation of sports and just coming into it when you're like 60, 65 or 70, um, they would find it quite intimidating to actually join like the mainstream classes with everyone else. But obviously mm. if you're like super fit and you're still fine, like yeah, join everyone else. But that is the hope for sure that yeah. in the gyms you would have such um, classes for them. Mm. Yeah, they feel comfortable to actually learn and grow as well. Yeah. Let's shift gears away from uh, biomedicine and talk more about your your PhD. It's a PhD, right? Uh, a DPT, so a Doctor a of Physiotherapy. Okay, mm. okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, what, what big differences do you see between, like, biomedicine and DPT? The differences that I saw or that, I, that I've experienced so far was that DPT is definitely a lot more specific. Everything that you're studying is exactly for what you're going to do, as opposed to biomed, which kind of, you know, it, it expands in many different directions. It doesn't really go in-depth into anything. Well, not, I wouldn't say anything, um, but it wouldn't go to the depth that you would need to actually specialize in that. So it was just kind of giving you a taste of everything. And then in DPT, everything's like, whoa, this is, this is intense. This is literally everything about this career. And um, I love it. It's like it, I think it, honestly, it's the first time that I actually felt this is exactly where I'm meant to be, and the, that that is the main difference. In biomed, sometimes I feel like oh, I'm doing a subject where I, I don't feel I should be doing. It doesn't make sense to me, but physio makes sense to me. DPT makes sense to me. Everything that is included in this course is solely included to prepare you for that career and nothing else. Definitely the major difference. Hmm. What is, what is the trajectory that you see yourself headed in post, like from, from here on out? So maybe I should outline the course slightly first. So uh, at this point, we are just doing a lot of theory, just learning everything and actually learning how to be a physiotherapist mm. um, and getting all the knowledge that's necessary for that. Next semester onwards, we actually start placement. Well, obviously still learning a couple of things here and there, but that's when we start to really practice and um, try out the different different fields or different uh, populations that we will be, uh, I guess, targeting. So that would be the geriatric population, the pediatric population, that would be the, uh, I, the women's health. So that would be for the pregnant, pregnant women. Yeah. Uh, we would also have the neuro, neuro wards and mm -hmm. also the, car the cardio um, respiratory, I'm not really sure, cardio cardiopulmonary, cardio, cardio respiratory or something, those wards. Basically, we're trying everything out to okay. see where we would fit in best yeah. uh, based on what we're interested in and also what we're good at. Mm. So that's basically the trajectory for the next three years. 
it's just a lot of training, a lot of placements. It's something that I'm actually really excited about is actually at the end of this entire course, we have something called the global um, global placement. I, I actually do. Global clinic, that's it. They call it global clinic. Yeah. Where you literally can go anywhere in the world to practice physiotherapy for like a couple of weeks, I think, which would be so, so fun. Um, I haven't actually decided where I wanted to go yet, but potentially um, maybe Austria where my family home is and my parents will hopefully be there as well and I can spend some time with them while I'm working. And it's kind of um, maybe a glimpse of what life could be for me if I were to move back, which mm -hmm. is very, very interesting um, to explore. Yeah. And yeah, so that's basically my three years for physiotherapy. So uh, for my for my episode on uh, biomedical engineering, I had this segment where my my co-host asked me, like, what what could you what have you learned from biomedicine? Uh, oh, like what what I learned from biomedical engineering could be applied to real life and ev everyday day to day things. And I told him for that one, I told him um, when you have a blister or you have a a yeah, something that, that contains like liquid, don't drain it because it's full of your cells and growth factors, which then increase and improve, uh, like speed up the healing process. Same with like burns mm -hmm. and, and things like that. Um, but then I, I guess I pose the same question to you. Uh, within biomedical, like biomedicine and, or ph and physiotherapy, what is something practical that people can know for everyday life? That's a very good question. I might have to think of it if that's okay. No, that's fine. <laughs> okay. Okay. Though there's one thing that comes up, but that's really, um, I feel like that's most useful for healthcare professionals. I can mention that and then I can mention something else that's sure. for everyday life. So the, the thing for healthcare professionals that I learned um, was the importance of patient-centered care. I think a lot of the time um, as healthcare professionals, you have so much knowledge that you want to share. You're like, oh yeah, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. You're going to get better for sure. But I have you heard, have you listened to the patient? Have you heard what he or she wants out of this? You know, like for example, a physiotherapist might focus a lot on like, okay, we've got to increase your range of motion from this to that. But then maybe the, all the, <laughs> the patient wants like, oh, I just want to be able to carry my kid up again. I mean, grandkid or something. Um, so yeah, there's, there needs to be a conversation going between the healthcare professionals and the patients in order for the treatment outcomes to actually be very, um, useful or beneficial for the patient and meaningful as well. Mm. So that's the thing for the healthcare professionals, um, a general thing for everyone. Um, oh, you've got to stretch. You have to stretch your muscles. If you are not stretching your muscles, um, you are, you are always contract, uh, your muscles are always tight, contracted, and you can't actually function very well. And you are at a higher risk for injuries. Right. So yeah, stretch your muscles if you can. <laughs> Foam roll, that'd be great. <laughs> so actually, when when you don't like, if you don't stretch, does your range mm -hmm. of motion eventually decrease? Oh uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Because just I'll just give an example of let's say pull ups, right? Yeah. If you are doing pull up and at the bottom you're not actually completely having your arms straightened out, mm -hmm. and that's kind of like always um slightly flexed your el your elbows, yep. then your biceps might get shorter and shorter like it's, it's just sometimes you might see people walking around and you realize they can't actually walk around with their hands uh, straightened out anymore it's because their right. biceps are just so so taut right and um if it just stays like that sometimes it could be permanent for some people i see but um 
if we maintain the length of the muscle, there's a greater range of motion, uh, greater power production. So really just overall greater performance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I can I can say the same for climbing. Um, oh, yeah. The best climbing sessions have been when I stretch my forearms, when I make sure yes. that my tendons are nice and warmed up. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Tendons, nice and warm. Yeah, it actually reminds me of something. <laughs> um, last night no, was in 2019, um, winter, dragon yep. boating. I never stretched or like warmed up my, my hands. And so I got a lot of um, tendinopathy within oh. in my fingers, so yeah. a lot of inflammation in the tendons. And it was so painful to even just pick up my bag. Yeah. Like I can't even think of picking up a barbell or dumbbell or anything or even paddle. So I actually had to strap my wrist to my paddle. So I, I didn't like use my, my, my fingers very much. Right. So definitely that point on warming up the tendons, non-negotiable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> but yeah, also I think because with dragon boarding, the water was very cold. Yeah. That's why. It's the same with like skiing and things like that. Oh, Especially yes, for sure. Yeah. With all the gloves. Mm -hmm. Can't imagine. Yeah. You just get stiff hands. Yeah. Okay. I think that's everything. Yes. Was that a useful tip? It was I a great people... tip. It was <laughs> a great think... tip. <laughs> people just say stretch, but no one actually does it. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. stretch, guys. Yes. I guess, I guess like between dynamic stretching and, and static stretching. Dynamic and static stretching. I think in the, in the military, we were doing uh, dynamic stretches before the exercise and then static stretches after the exercise. Is that like mm -hmm. the right school of thought? 100%, yes. Yes, so during the warm-up, you should be doing a lot of dynamic stretches uh, stretches um, and movements that you'll be using in the actual mm. um, like activity that you're warming up for. Yep. And the cool-down afterwards, it's more so just... Ex um, not extending but more so like lengthening the muscles again because yeah. when you use it for, for so long contracting contracting completely it's actually starting to shorten up mm -hmm. you've got to release it you've got to just um it also even actually helps to drain the lactate out of the muscles right. as well yeah so um not not only just getting rid of the stiffness but also what's gonna cause the doms in like two or three days the delayed onset of muscle soreness yeah <laughs> 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 But yeah, very good point. Dynamic before, static after. Okay. Um, then what about, I guess like when you, when I think about stretching and, and making sure that you're, you've got full range of motion, would mm -hmm. antagonistic, uh, the antagonistic exercise help with that as well? So for example, when you were talking about bicep curls and, and making sure that they're stretched, would triceps, training your triceps at the same time also um, do have the same effect? Although making sure that you're balanced between the muscles that you are working. Exactly. That point of balance. So um, it's important to have the complementary training, I suppose. If you're always training one side of things, you're just going to be really strong on one end, but the other end is just like, what's up? <laughs> what's mm. up there? <laughs> so you've, it's got to be balanced out and um, that actually prevents injuries as well. Mm -hmm. So by making sure that all the muscles groups are, muscle groups are equally strong, um, that would prevent I guess the over usage of the weaker muscles, because usually when uh, a muscle is injured or it's, it's much too strong, it actually um, impacts the one, the, the muscles, the antagonist muscles, for example, that are actually making up for, um, let's say in the case of an injured muscle, the, antagon the, muscles the antagonistic muscle will have to work harder to make up for the loss of function there. Um, also, if it's too strong, it's just going to pull on the weaker muscles. It can't sustain 
the the lack of balance and then gets injured the weaker muscles get injured as well so there are many many things to to think about in that case yeah so what are you planning on doing after dpt Mm. um after dpt i plan to work for some time first the -hmm. dream is actually to open up this um this geriatric outpatient clinic that's just focusing on providing rehabilitation to to patients who have just come out of like the acute ward or the geri- or the geriatric rehabilitation inpatient wards, those who actually can be living outside in community but still need some sort of, um, I guess, treatment to get them back up and running to actually mm-hmm. functioning in daily life. So that's the plan after. So yeah, graduation, working a bit, opening that clinic, and hopefully one day I really want to do a PhD. Mm-hmm. on sarcopenia <laughs> maybe that's like a given at this point like that's predictable <laughs> I, I really i really want to dedicate my entire life to sarcopenia that's that's really a, a big big passion of mine and also mm. i think um i want to do more for the geriatric population i i'm very very passionate about it also for, for some personal reasons and i feel like there's a lot that can still be done for this population in many ways they can be quite disadvantaged yep. um Sometimes I, I get the sentiment from some people that they think, oh yeah, they're, they're going to die soon. Why are you investing so much in them? And, and like, it's, it's not a very, it's not something that you hear very often, but it's definitely there. I, I do sense it from some people and um, it breaks my heart. I feel like I just want to fight for this, this population that's, um, that I guess is not really fought for. I want to yep. be their voice. Yep. And at the same time, like they tell great stories. So, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of this population and I want to dedicate my life to them. Mm. Okay, thank you so much, Nat. That's all right. Thank you very much for your time. I hope this episode was as insightful for you as it was for me. My biggest takeaway is that I'm definitely going to have a regimen of stretching before and after the exercise. Thank you for listening to the Gin and Tonic podcast. A very special thank you goes out to Veritas Music and Gust um, for letting us use their track Concentrate. Their links to their Spotify and YouTube can be found in the description.